0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Shining the Light, the podcast dedicated to sending out the marvelous light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm your host, Dane Edmondson. Here with me is my co-host, Brian Wise, lead pastor at Community Baptist Church of Richmond. Welcome to our fourth episode, Brian. Thank you, Dane. We're also joined today by our guest, Erfan Abdul-Latif, with Light of Life International. Welcome to the show, Irfan. Uh,
1: thank you for having me.
0: During today's episode, we are going to be hearing Irfan's salvation testimony, a little bit about Irfan, and about his ministry in the United States and also in the Middle East, uh, where he and other Christians are working to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. Irfan's also going to help us shed some light on the state of Islam and Christianity in the Middle East. Brian, will you please uh, share with our listeners about the gospel mission Why are followers of Jesus Christ so concerned about sharing the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ with others?
2: Well, Dane, you shared with our listeners last time that we exist to know Christ and to make him known. So there really is, there's no follower of Christ today that does not have someone to thank that they shared the gospel with them. And uh, I've shared, you know, my own life, my mom is the one who led me to faith in Christ. But every Christian, somebody shared the gospel with them. In Matthew's Gospel, the Lord Jesus delivered to his followers what has been called the Great Commission. And uh, that's in Matthew uh, twenty-eight, eighteen through 20. Many of our listeners are familiar with the idea of receiving commands or receiving marching orders from a person of higher rank, possibly because they've served in one of the armed forces, or maybe they've played in some type of a team sport. Well, for the Christian, we recognize Jesus to have all authority because he claimed to have all authority and he rose from the dead to validate and verify this claim to be legitimate. Let me read the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 28, beginning at verse 18. And Jesus came and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Our congregation is passionate about obeying the commands of the Lord Jesus. It's our desire to reach the world for Christ and reach right here from Richmond to the other side of our planet. It's our privilege to share the hope of the world with anyone who will listen so that they can hear the good news of forgiveness and salvation and life that is everlasting, that is offered freely in Christ Jesus alone. This gift is free to all, but it was accomplished through the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. It cost him his life. The command to make disciples is carried out in three ways. First of all, Jesus said His followers are to go, and we're to take the light. We're to share it in places where they've never heard of the name of Jesus. We're to call all people everywhere to repent, that is, to turn from their sin and to trust in Jesus. And when someone does, when they come to faith in Christ, then we're to baptize them. All who come to faith in Jesus, they're to follow Christ in the waters of baptism, to publicly declare their newfound life in Christ. This identifies believers with a local assembly of followers of Christ, which is the church, those who have been called out. Then we're to teach them. Jesus said, go, baptize, teach. And this is a lifelong process. It's just growth in Christ through the study, through the application of God's word, and then the sharing of God's word with others. So our church currently supports ministries in India, Germany, the Philippines, and Zambia, And we're constantly praying about potential partnerships in the gospel as we seek to faithfully obey the Lord's command to make disciples, and that can only be done in the power of the Holy Spirit, which he promised. I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we go in the power of the Holy Spirit to shine the light of the gospel from Richmond to the other side of the globe. Thank you, Brian.
0: We're not going to answer any questions from the audience today, just so we can give our full attention to Irfan. So, our first question for you, orfan is uh we just wanted to start by hearing a little bit from you about your salvation testimony and as much as your life um, about your life as you're comfortable sharing so how did uh first, how did you come to faith in Jesus Christ?
1: Sure well, um, I can't answer your question without first kind of discussing uh my background and uh, I was born in the Middle East, and the Middle East, of course, is overwhelmingly uh Muslim. And uh, my father was a Muslim, and he had accepted Jesus Christ because he had become very intrigued by him in reading the Quran, the Holy Book of Islam. And as you read through the Quran, he began very to be very intrigued by the person of Jesus Christ, and that led him to a church, which led him to salvation, which led him through the process that Brian just discussed. And... After that time, he was persecuted, he was thrown in jail, he was disowned by his family, and he came here to the United States. So even though I was born uh, in the Middle East, I grew up here in the United States, and I grew up in a Christian family. And my father was a church planter. He planted several different churches in the metro Detroit area. He also had a radio program, a TV program, and I was someone who was around Christianity my whole life. But having said that, I didn't accept Jesus Christ till I was almost 18 years old. And if I can share a little bit of that story with you, what happened is I attended a Christian school, but I knew from watching my parents that I did not ever want to accept Christianity. The reason for that was that when I saw my parents' life, I saw everything that they did was dictated by their Christianity. They were always reading the Bible. They were going to church. Jesus Christ was the most important person in our home, and I am by nature a rebellious person, so I always thought to myself, I'll I'll never let anyone have control over me. So when I was 17 years old, our Christian high school went to a camp, and I hadn't raised any money in any of our fundraisers on purpose because I didn't want to go to the camp. But one of my friends said to me, you know, if you don't go, it won't be any fun. It was a Christian school, a small Christian school. I think we had a graduating class of about six people. So he said, I want you to come. And he said, I've raised uh, more than double what I need. And that money's is just going to go to waste. So if if you'll go, I'll pay for it. And I went there and there were a lot of fun activities. We went whitewater rafting and zip lining and we did all these things. But every night there was a sermon. And I remember the first sermon I sat there. And for the first time in my life, I, I felt Holy Spirit conviction. Now, growing up in a Christian home, I knew how to play the game. When people would say, are you saved? I would say, yes, I made a profession when I was, you know, six years old and I'm, I'm saved and all the, these other things. But for the first time, I felt Holy Spirit conviction. I remember thinking to myself, Holy Spirit, you rascal, you're trying to get me saved because my, he knew what my plan was. My plan was I was going to go off to college. And when I went off to college, I wouldn't be under the rule of my parents anymore. I could do what I want. And then from college, I would just move away and I could quietly live my life as I wanted without, without rebelling against them. So I kind of bunkered down and this is what the thought that I had. I thought to myself, Friday is going to be the best sermon of the week and they're really going to hit us hard. So Irfan, if you can just make it through Friday night's sermon, you'll be fine. So literally the last day I sat at the very back row and I had my hands on the seat waiting for what was ready to come. And I was ready for this guy to preach a sermon like I had never heard. And the man began to speak. And I tell you, I don't think I remember a word of what he said. It was a dry, boring sermon. And I remember thinking to myself, you've got it. You're scout free. And then he gave the invitation. And the invitation wasn't even for salvation. But when I bowed my head and I closed my eyes, for the first time, I felt the Lord convicting me. And I knew that if I didn't get saved that night, that even though my father was a pastor and my parents had suffered for Christ, that I was bound for hell. And I had a Christian friend, and he was my best friend. And even though I did bad things, he never did them with me. He was always a good example. And the man said, if you're not willing to come up here and pray, pray with a friend. So I nudged my best friend, and I said, hey, we need to go pray. And that night, I accepted Jesus Christ as a 17-year-old teenager in a Christian camp. And that's how I came to know Jesus Christ as my Savior.
2: That's a powerful testimony, and I appreciate you sharing that with us, Safan. I want you to tell us a little bit now about Light of Life Ministries, and you grew up in a pastor's home, I grew up in a pastor's home, so some of these things I can identify with, and and at some point, uh, our faith, you know, that God opens our eyes, and it becomes our personal testimony that we come to know Christ, and He redeems us, and that's taking place in our lives. But what about that transition from then just being born again, uh, in Christ and then a call into serving the Lord full time, uh, with your life? How, how did that happen? Uh, tell us about that.
1: Well, immediately after accepting Jesus Christ, I felt myself called to serve him. But part of my testimony is I've always rebelled against God. I've always wanted to do things my way. And I'm very thankful that God is much smarter and much stronger than I am. So after I accepted Jesus Christ, I did uh, what was for me the next logical thing. And I went off to Bible college and I went to the Bible college that I went to simply because my three best friends were going there. And so I went to Bible college with them, but I was a business major for two years and I studied business and I remember I was sitting one day on my desk and I had my accounting class and I had the book there and I was working through the homework and I had my Bibles. And once I got done with my homework, I was going to start reading my Bible. And I remember thinking, man, I really hate this accounting class. I wish I could just get done with this homework and start reading this Bible. And then a light kind of dawned and it said, you know, if you were in full-time Christian ministry, you'd be studying that Bible right now and not that business book. So I remember I jumped up and I got real excited And I went outside and I grabbed the guy who was next door and I said, hey, man, I'm switching to a Bible major. And he looked at me and he said, you're not a Bible major already? And he thought I was because I was involved in pretty much any ministry I could be. So that's kind of how the Lord began to teach me. So first I got saved. But then when I went to Bible college, I was challenged, will you work for Jesus Christ? And one of the things that I believe is I believe we're saved to serve. So many times we make Christianity about ourselves. It's not. It's that we might know him and make him known, as we spoke about earlier. So then I was challenged to work. But then the Lord challenged me, will you work for me all the time? And of course, you can work for Jesus Christ in any profession. But it was a calling that I felt on my life that Jesus Christ wanted me to work in full-time Christian ministry.
2: So then that did that take place then right away, that you went from Bible college right into serving the Lord full-time and and, and just no, no hiccups, no problems, and and the, and the rest is history, as they say? No.
1: Uh, again, I was wanting to do things my own way. So I graduated from Bible college, and my parents couldn't help to help me afford Bible college, so I paid through Bible college on my own. And I took on a lot of student loans and things like that. And I graduated with a good amount of debt. And I used that, to be honest with you, as an excuse. I thought, you know, if I get into the ministry, I'll never make the kind of salary that I'll need to go back and pay off my student loans. So I worked for uh, about six years and I still served in church, but I would not get into full-time ministry. And the excuse was, I will not get into full-time ministry until I finish seminary. And I won't go to seminary until I've paid off all my loans. So I set up all these stumbling blocks. Well, the Lord brought for me a really good job and helped me to pay off all my loans. And then the Lord convicted me that, hey, it's time for you to go to get that seminary education. And from there, I went on to get that seminary education. So there's really um, six um about a six-year gap in between when I graduated Bible college and then going away to seminary and then after seminary uh getting involved uh, in full-time Christian service. So even in that area, I still kind of, Wanted to do things my own way.
2: So what you're saying is you're stubborn, right?
1: <laughs> I am, I am headstrong. Okay. Absolutely.
2: Tell us how then you, you came to serve in the ministry, uh, light of life ministries. How did that take place? I know your, your father was the one who founded this ministry. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. And how then did you come to serve in this ministry?
1: Well, again, we're going we're gonna to have a theme running here because I had no desire to get involved with this specific ministry. When my father came here to the United States, one of the things that shocked him and saddened in him was to see how Islam had spread in the metro Detroit area. Today, it's estimated there are over half a million Arabic-speaking people in the metro Detroit area. And if you go in, you know that there are mosques all around the metro Detroit area and things like that. So that burned my father's heart to reach people in the metro detroit area so as a young man i saw my father going out and trying to reach these people and they were very resistant to him and my father had a radio program and anyone would call in and i would hear my father called an infidel uh, we would get death threats at the house uh, all the time it became especially uh, bad in 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 the in the more recent years and so i saw a lot of difficulties and not only that but i saw my Father, as a missionary, as a church planner, that unfortunately sometimes we in the church have a poor attitude toward missions and I'll share this with you, Brian, as a young man, when I was out of school in the summertime, my father would take me around with him wherever he went and I remember my father had taken me to a pastor's fellowship and he was sitting down there was during lunchtime, and there were two pastors uh, ahead of me to get some food. There was a little buffet there. And the pastors were talking about where they were going to sit. And one of the pastors said, we can sit over there by that guy. There are empty seats. And he said, no, no, we don't want to sit by them, by him. He's a missionary. And then he said something that he, he said, they're all beggars. And I remember in that moment, in that time, I kind of bowed up within myself. And I said, I'll never do that. I'll never let anyone call me a beggar. You know, who are they that they could think such a thing about me? And in my pride, I felt that way. So for a long time, I never wanted to get involved with any kind of missions or church planning work because I felt that I would be degrading myself by doing so, unfortunately. Now, that's not obviously a belief that most pastors have. That was an isolated incident that unfortunately uh, I remember to this day. So how did you
2: come then to serve in light of life?
1: Well, in 2011, my father passed away. He had a heart attack, and I spoke at his funeral. I gave his eulogy, and at his funeral, the place was packed, so much so that there wasn't enough room for all the people uh, at the funeral home. The funeral home sat 400 people, and there were actually people outside for the whole service while he was there. And a month or so after the funeral, one of the board members of the ministry of Light of Life came to me and he asked, would you be interested in taking this over? We believe that you should take this over. And I literally laughed at him and I said, no, that, no, that, thank you. I'm not interested. And I gave him a flat no. And he said to me, will you pray about it at least? And I said, OK, I'll pray about it. And the more I prayed about it, the more I prayed about it, the more I realized that A work of God should never be based on a man, but it should be based on his word, the Bible, and his scripture. And if something is based on scripture, it's always going to continue and it's always going to bear fruit long after one person had passed. And beyond that, I saw the effect that my father's ministry had had, and I saw the incredible need that there was for the gospel to be preached, especially in the Muslim world. And so I went back to the group and I said, to the board of members, and I said, I will be glad to take over the ministry on one condition. And they said, well, what is that condition? And I said, I want to take the gospel back to the Middle East. I said, my father had a huge burden for the metro Detroit area, and I praise the Lord that there are good Arabic-speaking churches now. There are programs out there. There are wonderful American churches, now that we have second and third generation Arab people here in the metro Detroit area, that can reach out. But my burden was to go where nobody was hearing the gospel. So I said, if you allow me to take the gospel to the Middle East, then I'll then I'll continue the ministry. And they asked me, how are you going to do that? And I had no idea how to do it. But thankfully, the Lord knew what he was doing all along. Where does
2: that name come from, the Light of Life? How did your organization, do you know how that came about?
1: Sure. Uh, my father, when he was reading the Bible, he was very, very... Uh, influenced by the book of John. And in the book of John, we have the I am statements of Jesus Christ. And in John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus Christ gives us one of those I am statements. And he said, whosoever followeth me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And it was when my father accepted Jesus Christ that he literally speaks about himself going from darkness to light was the feeling that he had that he had before had no hope, that he had had no real light in his life, that he was in darkness, and that when he accepted Jesus Christ, he walked into this light, the light of life.
2: And, and when was the work established? When did your father then begin uh this ministry?
1: Uh Well, my father began his work uh, all the way back in the late 80s. Uh, I don't know an exact date. I was very young. But way back in the late 80s, he began it. Um and uh and he continued it on till about two thousand and eleven. So what then do you want to see accomplished? How how
2: do you wanna help shine the light of the gospel in the Middle East in such a difficult area that's always in so much turmoil? Uh we're we're watching these events unfold just in various ways daily on the news it seems, of the unrest and the violence and, and the people running for their lives and fleeing their homes, and, and there's so much unrest. What, what do you what do you see God doing in your life to make a difference uh, for Jesus Christ in such a difficult land?
1: Well, that's a very good point. In, in the Middle East, you never know what you're going to get from day to day. Things can change on a dime. And so to go over there is very difficult and to sustain ministry. But my heart really is to plant churches. And the reason my heart is to plant churches is because of what you mentioned earlier, Brian, which is that we want people not only to come to the knowledge of Jesus Christ, to be baptized, but also to grow in Jesus Christ. And I believe that a good church will be a church that goes out and reaches them. So our heart and our desire and our mission with Light of Life International is to plant churches in the Middle East so that we might grow disciples. And the way we do that is we use nationals. So we use uh, men who are born again, whatever country they're in, they're mostly from a Muslim background and we make sure that they meet the qualifications as, as is outlined in the Bible, that they're not a novice, that they have good knowledge. And we take and we support those men financially and we help train those men to start churches in their local areas. And really, that's what we do. You know, to, to have someone, and I praise the Lord for anyone who goes over to another country to share the gospel, that is wonderful. But what we do is we have men who already know the language, they already know the customs, they already know the area, they're already known by the people, and so they begin organic church planting movements within those areas. So that's really our goal is to plant churches there in the Middle East.
0: So shifting our uh, our discussion toward the Middle East... Do you have any statistics concerning the percentage of uh, Muslims versus Christians in the Middle East?
1: Sure. Um, well, first of all, we have to discuss that the Middle East is in what is called the 1040 window. And if you're not familiar with the 1040 window, the 1040 window refers to a strip of land between 10 and 40 degrees latitude, and it goes through northern Africa, the Middle East, and Asia. And this refers to the least reached people groups in the whole world. So in the Middle East, you have at least 90% of people are Muslim. And really in most countries that number is is greatly higher. In the countries where we operate, uh 95 and above percent of people are Muslim and less than 1% of those people. In fact, much less than 1% of those people are Bible believing Christians so much so that it's not statistically significant yet as to be measured how many people are Bible-believing Christians.
0: So with those low percentages, what would you say the atmosphere is like in the Middle East toward uh, Bible-believing Christians?
1: Well, the Middle East as a whole, there are differences. So you have some countries where there is more hostility and some countries where there is more openness. Uh, I'll give you an example. Lebanon is a country that is only 60% Muslim, about 40% Catholic. So there, there's much more openness. But in most of the Middle East, there is hostility. And the problem with the Middle East is not so much in being a Christian, the problem is in converting to Christianity. I'll give you an example. I was witnessing to one man here in the United States who was a Muslim. And I shared with him my father's story. And he got very angry and he said, What do you mean he changed his religion? He said, If you're born a Muslim, you die a Muslim. And that's really the attitude there, whether it, whether it be of the government, of the people. It is the idea of, hey, everyone keep your own religion, and no one can change their religion. So the freedom of religion that we have here, the freedom that we have to share, is quite a different thing than it is over there. That is considered oftentimes hate speech, and it varies from country to country. It can either get you jailed, or it can get you up to killed. It just depends on where you're at in the Middle East. So it's not a very receptive area by those who are extreme in their faith.
0: Um, Now, living here in uh, the metro Detroit area, we're kind of familiar with uh, terms like uh, such as Chaldean and Muslim and Arab, and we kind of know the differences. But for our listeners who might not be familiar with some of the terminologies, Arab is an ethnic designation, correct?
1: That is correct.
0: And then, uh, Muslim and, and Chaldean, those are, those are types of religious designations with Chaldean being, uh, Catholic.
1: Chaldeans are Catholics who are from Iraq and, um, they would trace their lineage back to people like Nebuchadnezzar, Hammurabi. And there is a large difference. Someone who was Arab, originally the word was Arabian, that it means they come from the region of Saudi Arabia and that Gulf area. And as Islam spread out, it spread out into other countries. So originally, even Iraq was not Arab people. Uh, Chaldeans, a lot of times, will get offended if you refer to them as Arab. They'll say, no, 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 I am Chaldean. Uh, same thing with Iranians. If you call an Iranian an Arab, they would be offended by that. They'll say, you know, I am Persian. Completely different people group. So when we talk about Arabs, we're talking uh strictly about those who came uh, from the Gulf areas, and oftentimes we hear the term anti-Semite, and we think of Jews. Well, as we know from the Bible, Jews and Arabs share the same lineage, so they are what are known as Semitic peoples. And um, I tell you, I spend time in the Middle East. The more you go to the Middle East and the more you understand the Middle East, the more you understand how true the Old Testament is and how that history is absolutely correct in what it shares. And reading the Old Testament is the West, one of the best ways you can understand the Middle East today.
0: So I've heard the, the term Shiite and, and Sunni before. Can you kind of shed some light on what those groups are and the differences between them?
1: Absolutely. So in our vernacular, we would talk about there being two big denominations in Islam. That would be the Sunnis and the Shias. And the Sunnis make up the vast majority of Islam. They make up 90% of Muslims in the world today, whereas the Shia only make up about 10%. And Sunni Muslims are considered Orthodox Muslims, while Shia Muslims are considered uh, unorthodox by the Sunni Muslims. And what happened was the schism originally happened after Muhammad passed away. And after Muhammad passed away, there needed to be a successor. So the successor was a man by the name of Abu Bakr. He was a close friend of Muhammad. He was a confidant of Muhammad. But the Shia believed that the successor had to be someone who came from the same bloodline as Muhammad. So that is where they originally parted ways. Now today, there are a lot more differences. There is a lot more problems between the two. There are Differences, other differences in, in doctrine that have that have arisen over time, but that is the beginning of the schism between the two groups.
0: Are there any other important terms that you'd like to share concerning uh, the culture of the Middle East that's important to understand the the, the culture in in that
1: region? Sure, there's a um, people group that you don't often hear discussed, and those are called the Kurds, the Kurdish people, in Syria, Turkey northern Iraq, and in Iran, there are a group of about 30 million people that are considered Kurds. Now, they are not Arab by uh, ethnicity. They are their own ethnicity. They are Sunni Muslims, but they have a much more open attitude toward religion than the rest of the people do. They don't have their own country. They don't have their own a uh, place that they call home, but they do have their own flag. They have their own military, and they are gaining political power, especially in places like Iraq.
0: Uh, we want to thank you for uh, joining us today, Irfan, and uh, to our listeners, we want to thank you for listening to this episode of Shining the Light. You can find us on Facebook at www.facebook.com dot facebook dot com slash CBC Podcast and Twitter at CBC Podcast, or email us anytime with your questions and comments at podcast at Richmond dot com. This show is a ministry of Community Baptist Church of Richmond. Uh, we want to thank uh, Stuart Scott for the uh, intro and outro music. If you're listening to this uh, show through iTunes or another podcast app, we ask that you please rate the podcast so we may reach even more people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Irfan, would you uh mind closing us, uh our time together with uh, prayer?
1: I'd be glad to. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for... Everything that you are. We thank you for your precious son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for our sins. And we thank you, Father, that as your son died for our sins, dear God, that his death was enough for the salvation of anyone who will put their faith in him. So, Heavenly Father, as we seek to be a shining light, to be a light of life to the rest of the world, we pray that you would give us a deep desire and a deep love for all people, no matter where they come from, no matter what their ethnicity, no matter what their religion, no matter what their language, that we would love people as you loved people. And Heavenly Father, may we always, always, always seek to know you more and to make you known throughout the world. Heavenly Father, we pray for now all those who do not know you. Father, our heart breaks. There was a time when we did not know you, but we thankful but we're thankful that we know you now. And so we pray for those who don't know you, those who haven't heard, that they would hear your wonderful gospel message, your good news, and that they would receive your good news and enter into fellowship with you. Father, thank you for this blessing. Thank you for this time that you've given us. Father, may it be useful to you and to your kingdom and all things we do that we might be to the praise of your glory. These things we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.